This week's New Testament reading is from Luke, and it's actually chapter 14, even though it says 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those has, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, "Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God." But he said to him, "A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, "Come, for everything is now ready." But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him. I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir... What you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Thanks, Rhiannon. Um, if, if there's ever an error in the bulletin, you can just assume it's totally not Mallory's fault. It's mine. Um, yeah, just like any time there's an error, it's probably my fault. Um, so uh, I may be a new face for some of you. I may be uh, all too familiar for some of you. Um, but like Will said earlier, my name is Tanner Crum, and I uh, my official title here is pastoral intern. Um, and what that means is that I'm serving a four-year sentence at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. Um, And during that time, uh, Tim and Mallory and Laura have all been gracious enough to welcome me um, to this team to to get some experience of what it's like to work in a church. Um, Some of you may be surprised. It doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings. There's stuff to do all throughout the week. Uh, and so I, I'm getting some real hands-on experience, um, and it's really gracious for uh, you all and for Tim and Mallory and Laura to, to let me do that. Um, so just really quickly, one of the things I'm focusing on um, in the internship is uh, neighborhood groups. So um, if you haven't gotten plugged into a neighborhood group and you would like to, you can get one of these comment cards um, and you fill out all your contact information and on the back there is this little bubble next to neighborhood group and you can fill that out. I'll get all your info and um, we can get you plugged in um, wherever that may be. Um, So, yes. And one more thing. I just want to point out that... um, Our mission here at Grace and Peace uh, is this. It's to glorify God in Greenville by proclaiming and embodying the gospel of Jesus 
through worship, welcome, and wonder. Um, and we believe that these are the things that we were designed for, um, that we were designed to worship God and to welcome one another uh, and to wonder together at his majesty and at his mercy and his grace. Um, and today, we're going to be kind of focusing on like the welcome part of our mission. Um, Jesus, through his parable in Luke chapter 14, is he's talking about what it looks like to what to welcome and to be welcomed in the kingdom of God. Um, so while we're talking about that, let me pray for us, uh, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have welcomed us into your house of worship. Um, none of us deserve to be here. Um, we're only here because you have brought us, you have enabled us through your Son, um, And Lord, I pray that we would worship you with sincere hearts, um, setting our minds on things that are above, not on things of this earth. Uh, And Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, that um, anything that is of me would be forgotten. Uh, Anything that is of your word and your spirit would be imprinted on our hearts and minds. Um, It's in your name, Father, that I pray. Amen. So... Jumping into Luke chapter 14 like we're doing this morning is kind of like trying to parachute down onto an already moving train. Because um, for the past five chapters, since Luke chapter 9, there's all this action that's been going on. In Luke 9, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he tells them that he's going to die. He prophesies his own death. And then there's this little verse uh, that Luke says, Jesus set his face on Jerusalem. And from that point on, everything that's going on, Jesus is, he's preaching sermons, he's telling parables, he's calling out the Pharisees, he's forgiving sinners, he's healing people. And all of this action is moving and moving and moving in one direction, and that's toward Jerusalem, where he is going to die. And we're jumping right into the middle of all that. This scene where Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house for a Sabbath brunch. Um, So after worship, they would have lunches at each other's house, kind of like we have a love feast after church. And so this is what Jesus is invited into. And you might think, wow, that's really nice that they invited Jesus to lunch. Um, But what we find out quickly is that in Luke Uh, 14, the first verse of this chapter, Luke tells us that the Pharisees invited him and they were watching him closely. They're watching him closely. And what that means is they were watching him to, to find something to accuse him for, to put him to death. And so that was, that's what Jesus is walking into. And Jesus knows that he's walking into this hostile environment. So when he is walking up to the house of this Pharisee and in the front yard, there's this man with dropsy. And dropsy is this really nasty condition. It's like an infection in your liver, and it makes your extremities swell up with this bodily fluid, and it's really painful and really gross. And some scholars think that uh, the Pharisees had planted this man in the front yard to get Jesus, because they knew that he would heal this man on the Sabbath, which was against their law. And so Jesus walks up to this man and he kneels down and he looks back at the Pharisees and he says, which of you would say it's wrong for me to heal on the Sabbath? And basically what he's saying is, is this it? Is this the thing that y'all are going to try and accuse me of? Because he didn't care. 
because he was going to heal him anyway. And so he heals this man on the Sabbath in front of the Pharisees, and the tension builds. And then they walk into the house where they're going to have lunch. And I, I can just see Jesus, like, kind of sitting in the back corner watching everything that's going on. Because what the Pharisees are doing, they're trying to, like, elbow their way to a very specific seat at the table. It was like a game. Like, it was a strategy to where you sat at the table. Because the closer you were to the host, the more prominent you were in the community. But you wanted to, like, sit close enough where you weren't too presumptuous of your position, but, like, close enough to where you could, like, inch your way up the table. And so all these grown men were playing this game and Jesus is staying there and he's like, what are you guys doing? Do you all even know what the Sabbath is about? Why, why are y'all doing this? Don't you know it's better to sit at a lower seat and be asked to come to a higher one than be sitting at a higher seat and asked to come to a lower one? And so he calls out all the guests at this party and the tension builds. And Jesus does the next thing he does is like the only thing that could make it worse. He alienates himself from everyone in the party. He offends them by healing on the Sabbath. And he turns to the host and he says, while we're at it, why, like, look around at all the people you invited to your party. They all look exactly like you. They talk like you. They, they, they're concerned about the same things that you're concerned about. And they're going to have a party next week and they're going to invite you. And that's going to be your repayment. Don't you know that if you invite the crippled and the lame and the poor and the blind, they can't repay you. And God will repay you at the resurrection of the just. And so he calls out the host. And at this point, like, if this were a TV show or a movie, we would fast forward it, like, as fast as we could. Because it's so gut-wrenchingly awkward. The tension in the room is palpable. And this is when Jesus decides to tell this story. So we're looking at the parable of the great banquet, and what I want you to see today is just two things. I want to talk about who's throwing the party and who's going to the party. So who's throwing and who's going. Um, or you could say who's welcoming people in and who's welcome. So in, in the story of the banquet... It's pretty straightforward. It's pretty unanimously agreed upon that God is the one who is throwing this party. What Jesus would do in his parables is he would insert certain characters that represented himself or God uh, or us. And it's no different in this parable. God is planning a party for his people. This is so cool because uh, the Christian God is a God who likes to party. Do you all know that? That the Christian God is a God who knows how to party. And like, if, if we went to one of his parties, it would be so amazing. It would be so good, so much fun, so wild that it would make us uncomfortable. Like, you may think you know how to party, but if you went to one of God's parties, it would make you uncomfortable. Uh, but so often we think the exact opposite, right? We think heaven is this like weird alternate reality, this like blank room that we're going to be sitting in and we have to be quiet and we have to put our hands in our lap because that's how we grew up in church. Um, there's a, a pastor and a theologian, who, his name is Donald Gray Barnhouse, um, 
And, and, he, and he has this quote about if Satan took over the world, um, let's make it Greenville. If Satan took over Greenville, what would it look like? He said, if Satan took over Greenville, all the bars would be closed, pornography would be banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who all smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Does that sound familiar to you guys? Like, maybe that's how some of us in here grew up. Like, we grew up thinking that this is what Christianity looks like. Being a Christian is plain, it's boring, it's uninteresting, it's not fun. You have to fake a smile wherever you go. You never talk about the bad things that happen at home. You have to keep up appearances. One day you get a good job, you have to get married, you have to have kids. That's what we think being a Christian looks like, but that's not the picture that the Bible paints for us from end to end. Like, if you look at the end in Revelation 19, you see the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's this huge celebration where we're reunited with the Father and with the Son. Or if you go back to Genesis 1, God creates the world. He creates us, not because he's some lonely deity, but because it's this outflowing of his character, of his goodness, and he wants to share it with us. Uh, Sims just read to us from Isaiah 25, um, where it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. There's another prophet who describes God's mountain as as dripping with wine, like from the mountain itself. And then when Jesus announces his ministry, where does he do it? He does it at a wedding, right? He, he does it by fixing this catering error. Like, he turns these huge jugs of water into wine, and it's wine that's so good that people get angry at him for it. They yell at him because it's so good. And scholars have actually done the math on this. And uh, what if you transferred the jugs into bottles of wine, this would be 921 bottles of wine. Like if you invited your, one of your church friends to a party and they brought a U-Haul full of 1,000 bottles of wine, that would make you uncomfortable, right? Because God's party is so good, it, makes, it would make us uncomfortable. And, and uh, in Matthew chapter 11... Jesus is criticized for it, right? He's criticized. Uh, like, all of his ministry is happening either on the way to, at, or leaving a party. He's going to a party in the passage today. And in Matthew chapter 11, his critics call him a glutton and a drunkard. Because he loves to feast, and he can't wait to celebrate with you and welcome you into his, pay, into his banquet. So God is the one who's throwing this party. It's going to be a huge, massive blowout party, and God's the one who's planning it. So who gets to go? Who's welcome to come to this banquet? I think uh, a lot of times when, when we think about having a party, we kind of think about it the same way that the Pharisees do, right? Like we want to invite people who are like us, who look like us, who act like us, probably from a similar income bracket as us, who aren't going to make us uncomfortable at their party. 
People who are going to have a party the next time and invite us to that, like we want to build some social capital when we're going to these parties, just like the Pharisees. But if what Jesus is saying is true, that's, that's not how it works in the economy of God. God doesn't care about the who's who of Jerusalem, and he doesn't care about the who's who of Greenville. Because the only people that come to his party are the losers. That's who gets to come to his banquet. In verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, A man once gave a banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. What they would do at this time is they would... um, they would send out this first round of invitations and you would like RSVP on the spot. They would get a head count. They would go back, prepare all the food, prepare the house, and they would send out a second round of invitations. And that's what the servant is doing. All these people already were invited. They all said they were coming to the party. And the second round of invitations comes and one by one, all of them back out. They all back out. One says, I, I just bought a field. I got to go tend to it. Have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoking of oxen. I have to go examine them. I have to look at them. Have me excused. And the other said, I, I've just got married, and therefore I cannot come, which is my favorite excuse. I think that's amazing. <laughs> Sorry, dude. I just got married. Can't come to your party. I'd rather do married stuff with her. Um, and what I want you to see about this is that they're not, this is, these are not crazy people with really lame excuses. Right? These are reasonable people with reasonable excuses who reason their way out of the kingdom of God. They're reasonable people. Look, Jesus, I have to work in the morning. I can't come to your party. I have an exam tomorrow. I have a test tomorrow. I have to study for it. I can't come to your party. I just bought this fleet of trucks for my warehouse. I have to go make sure they get there safe and sound. I can't come to your party. Um, sorry, dude, I got married. I can't come. Like, these are, these are reasonable excuses. And I, and I think what Jesus is telling us here is that the only way that we're not coming to his party is if we think that there's something better to do. The only reason we're not coming to his party is, if, is if we think there's actually something better. Like, Jesus is, is pressing down on all of their idols in this culture. And, and they're the same idols we have today, right? Work, success, relationships. Jesus is, is pressing down on all of those. And he's saying, if you think there's something better, if you think there's something more beautiful than the riches and the mercy and the grace available to you and the Father, then maybe you're not coming to the party. So the servant came and reported these things to his master, and the master of the house became angry. And he said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city. Bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. So at this point in the story, like, any reasonable host would have canceled his party, right? Why would you throw a party that no one is coming to? But we're not dealing with a reasonable host. We're not dealing with a God who thinks like us. So what does he do? He gets angry at the people 
who he invited and didn't come to his party, the people who had something better to do than his party. And so he goes out and he invites people who don't deserve to come. He gets mad at the people he invited in the first place. He goes and he invites people who don't even deserve to come to his party, the people that don't get invited to parties, the lame, the crippled, the blind, the poor. He, he rounds up the, this bunch of socially awkward people, and then there's still room in the house. There's still seats to be filled. And so, Jesus, and, the, and so the host says, go out even further. Go out to the highways and the hedges and invite the, the most broken, the most sinful, the most shameful, the biggest losers you can find, and tell them to come to the party. Because if those people who had something better to do, if they have a change of heart, and they come to my house, I want every seat full so there's no more room for them. For I tell you that, that none of the men who are invited shall taste of my banquet. Do you see what the host is doing? What the host is doing for his guests? All these people he invited to his house, they bring shame wherever they go. They would have brought shame onto his house. And what the host is doing is he's absorbing all of their shame and he's restoring their dignity by giving them his house, by giving them this banquet, by doing something as intimate as eating with them. He's saying, I think you guys are worthy. Do you guys remember the story of uh, Mephibosheth? Tim preached on this just a couple of months ago. In Second Samuel, where Mephibosheth, who was he was of the house of Saul, and when David became king, what he should have done is just just killed everyone who was of the house of Saul. And and Saul had this son named Mephibosheth who was crippled at birth, and the name Mephibosheth means from the mouth of shame. He brought shame wherever he went. And David, instead of killing him, instead of giving him what he deserved, he restored his dignity by making him a guest at his table for the rest of his days. This, this is the same thing that's going on in this parable. The host is taking on all the social debt of his guests. He's absorbing it into himself, and he's emptying himself of all of his social wealth. And he's giving it to them. He's humbling himself. Uh, when my mom and dad got married, my mom had two children from a previous marriage, and uh, their father had abandoned them. And uh, when my mom and dad decided to have me, and she got more and more pregnant, uh, my brother, who was nine at the time, he uh, got more and more insecure every day. Because in his nine-year-old mind, he thought, my mom and dad are going to love that child more than me because he's their biological son. And so one night, uh, he expressed this to my parents um, through his tears. And my dad sat him down, and he said this. He said, look, Anthony, that's his name, my little brother. Look, Anthony, I don't know who's in your mommy's tummy. I don't know what he looks like. He doesn't even have a name yet. I don't know who he is. But before I was your dad, I knew you. I knew what you looked like. 
I knew all the really good things about you. I knew all the really bad things about you. And I chose for you to be my son. I will always be your father. And I will always love you. And what my dad did for my older brother was he took all of that shame from being abandoned by his biological father. And he gave him all of the glory that he had by placing his name on him and calling him his son and adopting him into his family. That was the last time that Anthony had any questions about who his dad was or if he loved him. But I often think about, like, what if, what if Anthony had never told them about that? What if for the rest of his life he carried around the shame and he decided that he was going to work harder than anyone else, he was going to be smarter than anyone else, he was going to get more done than anyone else, and he was going to earn my dad's love? That's what the elder brother and the prodigal son did, right? What if he was going to spend the rest of his life trying to earn the love that he already had? He would have missed out on the party. He would have missed out on knowing how much my dad actually loved him. And I bet that there's some of us sitting in here um, who kind of feel like my older brother did when he was nine. Who kind of feel like God doesn't actually love them. And you've been spending your life toiling for a love that you've already had. Whether, whether it's through your profession or through potential sex, success or through a prospect of a relationship. That you've been trying to grasp on to anything that promises you hope. I'm going to work harder than anyone else, and my colleagues will love me, and my family will love me, my dad and my mom, they'll actually be proud of me. Maybe I can love myself. I'm going to be so powerful and so successful and so wealthy that no one's going to be able to ignore me. I'm going to find so much acceptance through the people around me that maybe I can actually accept myself. And it If you're sitting in here and that's what you think today, you're going to miss out on the party. You're going to miss out on the banquet. Because the only thing that can promise you hope and the only thing that can keep that promise is the hope that we have in Christ. The hope that God is throwing this huge, massive, blowout party and that only the losers are invited. That's what we hope in. Jesus says over and over again, he says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his, lo- his life for my sake, he'll save it. That's what he's saying in the story. So he says over and over again. That's like his thing. You have to be a loser if you want to come to this party. So, so the charge this morning, we're about to come to the table. We're going to take communion. And the charge this morning is not to come up to this table with your resume, with your own strength and your own righteousness with your bank account, coming to this table and hoping that maybe God is going to welcome you to his banquet. That's not what we do. The charge this morning is to bring all of your blindness and your lameness and your crippledness 
in your, in your poverty and your shame and bring that to the table, knowing that before you knew him, God knew you and he knew all the good things about you and he knew all the bad things about you and he chose you to be his son or his daughter. That's our hope this morning. So um, if, you, if you believe that, if you really believe that, then please come to, come to the banquet, come to the table, Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, thank you that these words are true, that we don't have to doubt whether or not you love us, that you tell us pretty explicitly all throughout your word that you do, that we don't bring anything to the table except for our shame except for our crippledness and our lameness and our blindness. And you make us whole. You heal us. And Father, as we come and we eat of your body and drink of your blood, I pray that you would make your presence known to us today. That we would leave filled with hope. That the peace of Christ would rule in our hearts. In your name I pray. Amen.